the main ingredient. much for listening. I am David Nafeld. I'm here rocking with my man, my brother from another mother, Manny J. What up, what up, what up, world? Hope everyone had a beautiful and blessed Thanksgiving holiday. I know I did. I had an amazing, very, very intimate, very, very small get-together with my family. Um, and that's not something I think we're ever going to take for granted again. No, definitely. The the very, very small, uh, just like immediate family Thanksgiving is quite unusual. But yeah, it's something that um, I'm definitely looking forward to getting it back to normal. Well, I mean, just human connection in general. I think that's something we are not going to take for granted. Um, I think just our everyday hustle is something that maybe a lot of us took for granted. Just the things that were in front of you. Or maybe it was your hustle that that had you blinded to the other things like your, you know, daily interactions with people that you loved. But I will say that regardless of, you know, where you were, what mindset you were in, you know, March of 2020, I think it's probably different for everybody moving forward. Absolutely. And so someone that I've gotten to know a lot more over the past year. You know, I, I knew, I've known who he was my entire career, but I've actually gotten to know him more as a colleague than anything else over the past year is Tom Colicchio, who uh, he, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more prestigious uh, chef, restaurateur, figure in the culinary industry in the United States. Tom Colicchio was responsible in a lot of ways for what we know as American cuisine. And he put his fingerprint on it in a way I think I resonated with or that resonated with me probably more than almost any other chef. So would you say he's pretty influential to you? In in my career, he certainly has been. You know, I like his approach to cuisine. It's very natural. Yeah. Um, it's very, uh, driven by ingredients, uh, which is something by the way, um, you know, is known for a California style of cooking and he's always been cooking in New York. He made his name at, uh, Gramercy Tavern, which is probably my favorite restaurant in the country. Really? Yeah. And, and also owned by someone that I worked for, for a long time, Danny Meyer, who, you know, I have a, um, incredible amount of respect for and, Watching Tom and his career going from a chef's chef, someone who cooked for a living, someone who was uh, very well regarded by other chefs, you know, not just a TV chef, and then, you know, opening his own empire of restaurants and then pivoting to being on TV and changing his kind of career to being more media driven. Um, you know, he's got all sorts of brand partnerships. He's got all sorts of things, uh, you know, that he's constantly doing. And then past that, you know, over the past few years, he's become an advocate for not just the culinary industry, but, um, 
I guess you would say food and the food ways of America in general. And what I mean by that is that he has spent a significant amount of his time, um, you know, working in Washington on trying to fix a lot of problems with our food systems in general, how we do farming in this country, how food gets to human beings. So he, um, so he's basically encompassing the whole thing, not just the restaurant, but where the restaurant sources their food and just everything. I mean, he's really touched so many different areas yeah. of, like I said, the food ways of, you know, just the whole ecosystem of food. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it: ecosystem of food and and the restaurant industry as a whole. And you know, now that he is, you know at a certain point in his career and you know he's been very successful i think that it's very easy for a lot of young bucks out there to try and take shots at him you know because they view him as being you know upper crest right like he's he's very successful it's like top dog kind of yeah and you'll see a lot of cats out there trying to take swings at him not a lot but a, a few certainly try and take swings at him because you know, I feel like maybe they view him as an outlet for who they can point, um, you know, their, uh, call it their frustration with the system, or, you know, they, they view him as being the establishment or whatever. And it's funny because one thing that I've learned about Tom over the past year is he is not afraid to clap back. Like, there's a lot of people who, out there who will not kind of get into it, like, in any way with someone and he is not one of those people like if you don't want tom to answer don't don't at, ask don't at him yeah I actually you you told me to follow him on twitter so i was going through his feed and he's a good been, follow there's been some snarky uh comments and he he ain't he ain't scared he just replies back and says what he feels well he's just you know what it is i think he's just not too big in the sense of he he genuinely feels like he's doing the right thing at every step. He thinks he's doing the right thing, and and whether he is or isn't, that's not for me to judge. But in his heart, I know he thinks he, he's always out there doing the right thing, doing whatever's righteous. So when people come at him, he's not afraid to kind of you know to 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 have that discussion openly. Yeah. And even like people who have been openly critical of him, he's even invited them, and he's got a much bigger platform as you can imagine. And he's even invited those people on like IG Live to you know, to to talk it out, to hash it out. That's cool. It, it is really cool, and it shows a lot about his character in the sense that he is, you know, he he is not that kind of like unapproachable upper crest, like you know, socialite, um, not down to earth. You know, like the dude has been very successful, but it's been he's been very successful because he grinds, right. he hustles, he he's out there pushing. And, you know, I think that we're in a world today where it's very easy to vilify anyone who's found success when we ourselves are still struggling to get that success, right? We feel like they're the key holders, right? So you, you constantly feel like you have to go at those people. And I, I feel like he's always handled it with, you know, uh, a certain level of, you know, I don't want to say humility because I don't know that it's always about humility. I think that he's always handled it with a certain element of realness, Right. Like he hasn't lost touch with who his real self is. And at the end of the day, I think his real self is just that that same gritty cook in the kitchen who's not afraid of conflict. But at the same time, you know, he, it's not that he's trying to create conflict, but he's just, you know, he cares. He cares. 
right? Yeah. He cares about whatever he does. So we're very thankful that he's been willing to come on the podcast today. Um, we're super stoked to talk about, you know, the Restaurant Act, something that I've been, you know, how I've gotten to know him is that we work together on the IRC, the Independent Restaurant Coalition. He's one of the founders of uh, IRC, right? Yeah, he's one of the founding members, right? We're both on the leadership and advisory board together. And, you know, he is an active voice. He's on those calls every single day, you know, and, and constantly pushing to try and get this Restaurant Act passed. He's constantly working to try and make a better industry for all of us. Um, you know, and I've gotten to get to know him, um, and firsthand work with him on those things. We're also, uh, we get to talk a little bit about restaurant culture and, you know, where it needs to change and how those changes probably will impact us, whether positively, um, or, or even negatively impact us. Sure. Um, and, you know, ultimately we're also going to talk about food policy and why is food in the United States, um, you know, expected to be so cheap. Right. And and I think a lot of that is centered around, you know, uh, inequities, um, both racial inequities and cultural inequities around like who picks food, who grows food and who who cooks food. So uh, without further ado, I'm very excited to get into this. So, you know, let's take it away. Let's do it. The main ingredient. All right, Tom. Well, thank you very much for being here with us. Um, I appreciate it. I wanted to start out by telling you that, um, you know, I think something that is important for me to kind of express to you is the fact that, you know, I think now in your this season of your career, you know, you're looked at very much as like a, a media personality and someone that is um, you know, a TV personality, someone if and if you would have just started cooking in the past 10 years, um, you know, I think it would be very reasonable for, you know, someone to just look at you and say, oh, that's, you know, th that's the head chef or the head, head judge on top chef, right? Like, and he has some restaurants, but I know him as the head chef uh, or the head judge. And I feel like for a certain generation of us that, um, have come up in cooking over the past 20 years, you know, in a certain segment of dining, um, you have been kind of, uh, you know, at least for me personally, someone who has been responsible for why American cuisine is where it is today. And I think that I would be remiss if I didn't kind of start the podcast by saying that I think a lot of my cooking and a lot of the style of my cooking that either I've learned or adopted over the years has been um, kind of the tracks have been laid by people like you and you specifically and you're cooking. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to kind of have you on the podcast today and, and, you know, I'm honored to be able to kind of talk to you about these things. Thanks, David. You know, uh, yeah, I, 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 I get, I take your point and it's something that I, you know, I've been cognizant of for a while. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I've been cooking for probably close to 40 years now. And uh, actually, about forty years now, and um, you know, it's the problem with with I guess be, becoming known on TV is that people people know you from TV, and you know they, they don't they don't get to your restaurant, and, and you know I got I got there's a few issues. So you know I I when I was at Gramercy, and I left to do craft, 
there was two years overlap where I was still at Gramercy and then doing craft and craft was some, something that was completely different um, in terms of food. You know, I didn't have a, an Italian restaurant in me, even though craft is kind of close to really close to Italian, especially in the early days. Um, I didn't have like a, you know, a Thai restaurant or anything like that. And so I, I came up with this idea to do something really, really simple. Uh, you know, Gramercy, the food was a little more complex and, and, you know, I had an amazing kitchen staff and then, you know, and a lot of those, a lot of that team came with me to open, to open craft, but I wanted to do something really stripped down. And I kind of thought, you know, there was so much talk. This is 20, almost 20 years ago. So much talk about ingredients and farmers. And so I figured, well, what if we strip it down? And I, I always had a bowl of peas in my head, you know, when peas are perfect, and you just cook them a little bit of water and butter and salt and pepper. There's nothing better. And, you know, where could you go for a bowl, a bowl of peas if you really wanted a bowl of peas? And I always thought, well, you know, if we're doing a Gramercy, if I had peas on the menu, it's probably on three different things. It's on the appetizer, you know, springtime. It's an appetizer, probably an entree, tasting menu. And what if they come in and they're starchy? I'm probably still going to use them because it's too, it's, you know, uh, they're not perfect. Maybe they're, they're, they're fine, but they're not perfect. And so I thought, well, you know, where can you go get that? Where can you go to get a plate of morels or just a, a perfectly, you know, a baby lamb with, you know, a piece of the rack and a piece of the, the, the loin and some of the leg and the liver, the liver and kidney. And it's just that, that's it. Olive oil, some herbs, that's it. No garnishes. And so, I, you know, I leave Gramercy two years into it. And that's when I started doing Top Chef. And then I started hearing people coming into, into craft and going, this is it. This is all he does. <laughs> well, which is, which is funny because, I mean, anyone who knows anything knows that the simplest things in the world are the hardest to execute. Yeah, well, it's, it's, like, it's like, you know, walking a tightrope out of a safety net. You fall. It's pretty easy to see. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, if it's a bowl of peas and, and any of them are starchy, you know, and I think a lot of people don't even think about the level of sourcing that restaurants like yours do right it's not just about picking up the phone and calling baldor and saying hey let me get you know english peas right it's like no i have a relationship with the person that grows the peas that i like i know what size peas i like i will separate the peas into the smallest the medium ones and the large starchy ones and the large starchy ones will go for puree or or soup or something like that and then the small ones get treated like this and and the larger the medium ones get double shucked and the smaller ones the skin's more tender right like people don't understand the level of thought that a chef like you puts into something like english peas right there's you know rick bishop who's one of our farmers that we use amazing sweet that's sweet mountain berry well, no, no, that, that, that was his. And then his wife took that. And he started this different one, but he, he gets excited and calls up and walk by one day and he goes, the carrots are at 14 bricks. I can never get to the 14 bricks. I can only get to the 12. They're finally at 14, meaning the amount of sugar that's in the actual carrot. And he's like, these are the best now. Like that, that kind of excitement. <laughs> you know, how do you convey that to someone? They're looking and go, it's a bowl of carrots. It's like, no, it's a little more than that. So, you know, but, but so, not only was, was I cognizant that a lot of young chefs that are coming up <clears throat> know me from TV and it's like, hey, he's a TV chef and I'm a badass. And it's like, all right, you're, you're a badass. I get it. And I'm a TV chef, fine. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't cook on TV, which is kind of cool. Um, but, you know what, I, I, I don't feel I have much to prove. It, it, you know, if that's going on, it's fine. I, I don't have a lot to prove. And, you know, I still go in my kitchen, especially, you know, pre-pandemic, I was in craft most nights again. There was just something, you know, there's always, when you, when you hit a certain age and, and, and 
certain longevity in the business, you start thinking in terms of how do you stay re relevant? And I, I, you know, I'm sure this happens in music. I'm sure this happens in a lot of other, you know, uh, creative endeavors. You, you, you kind of lose your edge when you get a little older. You know, when you're young and you have all the energy in the world and you don't have children to worry about or, you know, relationships to worry about. And you could spend 100% of your time, you know, in that kitchen creating. And, you know, then you start running a business and, you know, you have right brain, you know, left right brain and you got to, you know, you're up in the office, you know, dealing with HR issues and reading P&Ls and that kind of just zaps you of all your creative energy. And it's, it's really hard to find that time to create. So I kind of felt I was kind of, you know, I, I did this thing right around that time when the person walked in and said, this is all you do. I said, well, all right, I got to start something here. I, I, so I started doing Tom's Tuesday dinner, which was a, in our private dining room, the open kitchen. And we started doing a tasting menu, 10 or 12 courses. We only did it on Tuesday. We did it uh, Tuesday nights. That was it. And uh, this is going back to 2010. And that kind of, you know, gave me a jump again. And then, you know, recently I started doing it again. Um, uh, I, I stopped it for a while. I had neck surgery and I was out for a while. So I started doing it again. And then I start going, you know, spending so much more time in the kitchen. And I go on the line and go, you know, go to the Migros guy and go step aside and me do this. <laughs> you know, and I do it for a couple hours and then tap out. Right. Uh, but, well, you know, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's, it's out there. It doesn't, it used to bother me more. Um, you know, you, you, you read the stuff on social media. It's like, yeah, I got a hack on TV. Uh, it doesn't really bother me much anymore. Yeah, but it, it, you know, and I'll but I'll tell you, it bothers me. You know, and and this is why. And 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 I'll tell you, it's not for. I think a, a reason that I I you know, I, I I think I've long passed the point in my life where I have any idols, right? Like I mean, every idol you have will disappoint you at some point. But I do still recognize the chefs that cooked their asses off for a long time and i think that we're in a world today where you know um actually in a you're the you know a lot of the reason for this or something that you've done is a lot of the reason for this but the barrier to entry to becoming a chef is so much smaller so much easier than it was and i don't want to say easy because i'm belittling it or saying oh it was harder in my day or harder in your day that's not what i'm trying to say i'm saying that the lev the playing field has actually been more leveled and that's a good thing and i think top chef played a major role in that but i do want to say that like when you were being you know uh, uh, a chef de cuisine or the first time you stepped into an executive chef role i mean the idea of being a sous chef, you know, um, in the first five, six, seven, eight years of your career was kind of unheard of. And then further than that, like the idea of opening or being a chef of your own restaurant, you know, in less than, you know, 15, 16, 17 years of cooking was also kind of strange, right? Like that would be a very uh, an anomaly. And I yeah. think that due to the top chef culture, due to the accessibility that you in part have kind of created, you know, the, um, the platform that's given to a lot of chefs. A lot of these folks have been cooking for five, six, seven years, and they're off opening their own restaurants. I, yeah. I wonder, do you feel like there's a double-edged sword there? Well, yes. I, I mean, I think that Food Network was around a lot longer before, you know, Top Chef was, and I think that's what got a lot of young people. Um, I know Roy, Roy Choi tells a story that, you know, he was down and out and, 
you know, kind of drugged up and was watching TV one day and he saw Emerald on TV and he said, Emerald spoke to him through the TV. And he said, <laughs> I have to be chef. And so there's some positive, there's some positive aspects of it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think there's another issue at play here. And, and it's, a, a, you know, a lot of people gone off to culinary school and they're coming out with debts and, you know, $50,000 worth of debt and they've got to pay it off. And so they're, they're not willing to, they can't put that time in. You know, two years in, in, you know, at culinary school, they want a sous chef position because they make more money. And so th they don't have the time to play anymore. They have to pay that student loan out. When I, I mean, I didn't go to culinary school. I started working in restaurants at the age of 15. I was a shorter cook at a, at a country, uh, well, a swim club when I was 15 years old. Um, and best job I ever had in my life. I worked in t-shirts. I bet. I worked in a pair of cutoff shorts, maybe a t-shirt, maybe shoes. And I was like. Do you still hey. have those cutoff shorts, Tom? No, I, 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 I think my 11 year old could wear them now, not me. But uh, the cool thing, I was making $275 a week under the table. It was, it was awesome. I mean, that was a fortune. Yeah, it was. Yeah, for 50 year old. But so, so I think, I think there's a lot of pressure for people to pay their student loans off, and they, they, they're not patient anymore. They, they want that job. Plus, there's so many more restaurants, and there's so many different opportunities now. You know, when I was coming up, French and Italian, maybe Italian. You know, it was all you know. You learned French food, then. There was the, it was also the beginning of American cuisine. You know, Jonathan Waxman was was in at Michael's in Santa Monica, and and uh, uh, you know Wolfgang Puck was at Spago, the original Spago still. Um, you know, and they became the darlings of the food world. Larry Forgione and um, you know Alice Waters and, um, and those those people have really kind of put you know Jeremiah Tower put New York New York uh, put American food on the map, um, and so. But there were fewer restaurants to go to. I and mean, back then, really, in New York, there was maybe 10 restaurants that you wanted to work in. Everybody wanted to work at Utesse. Look, a bunch of people came out of La Côte Basque. I worked at Coulter Giraffe, which was a you know, four-star restaurant at the time. Um, and, and was that, that, was was that a New Pulse? Or or... In New York, Alfred Portali had just started working at Gotham. Wow. Yeah. And so during that time... You know, obviously, it was a much. I think the a lot of the demons that uh, our industry is kind of, uh, I would say, infamous for uh, today, which you know people re read about in books like um, Kitchen Confidential and anything that kind of gets sensationalized around what our industry is. Um, you know, you you, I think you probably were in the kind of eye of the. Um, the eye of the tornado, I guess you would say, or the eye of the hurricane in terms of, you know, when working in a kitchen was really uh, something that was pretty rugged, right? Like, I think that we've gotten to a point or we're at least getting to a point where, you know, it's becoming very clear that kitchen culture or restaurant culture is, um, is changing, right? And, uh, you know, and I would say that the, the majority of that change is very positive and, and it's getting rid of a lot of shit that, I think uh, was distractions and 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 troubling and and very problematic, but I'm concerned with, along with the kind of baby with the bathwater syndrome that's happening. You're reading a lot of these articles that are saying, "Hey, like let the industry burn to the ground. Uh, let you know nobody should save these, um, you know, save this industry, save these restaurants." But I kind of want to talk to you about what this industry is capable of. If, you know, if done right, you know, um, as far as I understand it, right, like you, 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 you've talked about the fact that, you know, you grew up with, uh, 
ADHD and, and a learning disability. And that's something that um, you had to kind of overcome. But working in a restaurants gave you an opportunity, right, for a better life. Yeah, yeah. So when I started working, um, you know, I, I struggled as a kid uh, in, in, in school. I had, you know, would have been diagnosed with ADHD. All of my children have been clinically diagnosed. And, and I, I see a lot of the same uh, issues that they had that I, I had. But when I when I got into the kitchen, into the restaurant, I mean, something just clicked for me. It all just made sense. It was just so easy, um, and uh, I found refuge there. I found it was a place like I could function, like and so I could work eighty hours a week and not care because I was having a great time, um, and I was learning. I was learning something. And you know, the, the first couple of restaurants I worked in weren't great places. I worked in a seafood joint that we would do a thousand covers on a Saturday night, um, and it was a it was a big party. I mean, it was it was crazy. I was you know a teenager. And most of the servers, you know, were college students and, you know, it was, we had, we just had a good time. And, and I worked in a red sauce Italian place where the guys would do amphetamines at six o'clock to get going and then value, you know, they give you a value on the way home and say, go to sleep. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but when I got to New York, you know, the, th the thing that was interesting too is, is back then there, there weren't a whole lot of women in the kitchen. So guys can act like a bunch of jagoffs and, and, you know, and, and, and it was that it was acceptable or, or okay. It's just that you know, uh, this it, it, it just was. It was a different time. I'm not saying I'm not saying it was a, a good environment, but it was a different time. But also, I think you got to go back to um, you know, on Dave Chang's podcast. I think he was with Corey Lee, and he was talking about the brigade system and how that's got to go. I don't know if it's necessarily the brigade system. I think the problem was that. You know, when I worked in France, the kids who were in the kitchen, uh, they didn't want to be there. They they were kids who couldn't have gone to their secondary education. And their father would bring them to the, the restaurant and say, teach my kid how to cook. They, they had no passion. Very few of them did anyway. And they were getting yelled at because th that's that's just the way it was. And I think a lot of that transferred, you know, going back to the, the World's Fair back in the, I think it was the 50s, um, uh, where the, the French... You know, they, they built a restaurant for the World's Fair and then found a permanent home in New York. And so many of the, the French chefs came out of that school. And so this was this was the culture. The culture was yelling. It was you know being demanding. It was working a lot of hours. There was this sense of, of camaraderie and, and machismo that that just was part of the culture. And clearly that has to change. <clears throat> um, the more and, and again, this is also part of food TV, the more that it looked attractive the more people want to be involved and they want to get involved. And I think that's a great thing, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, you know, more women in, in, you know, are working in restaurants. Um, there are clearly more, more people of color that want to play. And I mean, you know, when I grew up, there was one black chef, it was Patrick Clark. Um, that was it. Um, and, uh, you know, and so, you know, obviously culturally we, we have to change burning it all down. I don't, I don't know if that's a, you know, how how I would go about it, um, because you know the same people it, burn it all down. I don't know what that means. I, I, you know, you're gonna own a restaurant. And the problem is, it's not say the restaurant business. It's not some monolithic thing. Everyone chooses to run their restaurants the way they run them, and I think that there's gonna be more of an emphasis on what kitchen do I want to work in? I think the reputation of, you know, it used to be, I want to go in that kitchen because I want to prove myself a badass because I know that kitchen's really, really hard. It's going to be, where can I actually go and learn and not feel I'm being attacked and I'm feeling that I'm supported? Those, are the, those chefs are going to get their reputation. 
not not the, not the reputation of, of being the hard ass. And so I think I think that you know culturally it all has to change. The way the press covers you know covered restaurants is change is starting to change. Uh, wars and things like that are starting to change. Mentorship is starting to change, and I think that all you know it, it has to happen from within because burning you're going to burn it all down. Um, you know, there's a lot of bad actors out there and they were allowed to, to do what they did for a long time. Um, but, you know, in most cases, they'd still have restaurants if it weren't for the clientele to decide that I can no longer go to that restaurant. Or the food writer said, I can no longer write about that restaurant positively. I can't pretend that, that this shit's not going on anymore. And so... Um, yeah, but to a certain extent, I mean, nobody was even pretending with a lot of these people. Like, I mean, I know that you know, anybody who's ever read the book Heat will, you know, knew that Mario Batali was doing the things that he was doing or acting in a way that he was acting, right? Like, none of that stuff was a secret. And if you work in New York, I know you certainly did because I wasn't at a high level and I was working, you know, I was working in kitchens and I was at events and I would see how he acted, right? And I think anyone with a pair of eyes knew that these things were going on. Uh, anyone that you know, went out, knew how kitchens worked, right? You would hear which kitchen the chef had a massive Coke problem or which kitchen the chef was a psychopath. And I think a lot of people, by the way, um, you know, at that point, they didn't care as long as it meant that they would get that place on their resume or they would learn whatever that chef had to teach them. Um, I, well, I, uh, I want to ask you this question then. We are, though, kind of in this season of this industry where there is a lot of change happening and a lot of that change is for good and a lot of the bullshit is going away or, or hopefully it's, it's at least getting kind of pushed into the darkness, right? Like people are, are, are scared now to, to show that off, which is a good thing, right? Like, and hopefully at some point we can cycle those people out and, and change the culture for the better. But as you said, there's bad actors in every industry. My question to you about the industry is this, is that I think through probably because of labor laws or the way businesses are structured today, people are not getting the same level of uh, mentorship or I would say education in restaurants anymore. I think that there was a time where there was no way that you would be a sous chef before you were a saucier, before you were uh, the AM butcher, you know, and you knew how to break down every fish that came into the restaurant, or you knew how to break down the lamb saddles, or you knew how to, you know, uh, make the uh, charcuterie or, or, or the terrines or, or, or whatever it is. And I'm seeing that due to the kind of constraints of the business model today that a lot of people are getting pigeonholed into, hey, you're going to work this station, you're going to glaze these vegetables for a year, then you're going to go to the next station, you're going to cut meat out of a bag uh, and, and sear it for a year. And then, right. you know, you may, you may learn some stuff on Garmin J, like, but probably a lot of that stuff will get cut for you and made for you and molded for you before you even get there. Um, my, my, my advice, that I, I hear you, my, my advice that I would give to any young cook right now is go work for a chef for one year. If they're going to give you one job for the one year, then work, work and then get out and go somewhere else. Keep your eyes open. Keep your head up. Ask questions. Um, but, you know, I always I, I, I always thought, and I did this for a while, 
um, I, I would tell my cooks when I hire them, um, I don't expect you to stay here for more than a year. I, I would tell them. I, 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 I'm, not gonna, I'm not one of those guys who are like, oh my God, you're going to leave me. I'll, I'll, I'm never going to talk to you again. I, I, it's just not, not what I was into. I was like, you'll stay here for a year. And here's the deal. You do a great job for me. Don't go out and start shopping your resume. Don't try to hide it. Come to me and say, hey, Tom, I worked here for a year. I want to go work for Eric Repair. Can you call him? Or I want to go work for Alpha Portali. Can you call him for me? Don't go there and show up because your, your resume may get lost in a shuffle. You may never get the interview. But if I call Alfred, I call Eric, you're gonna, they'll take time to sit down with you. So do a great job for me. And I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, tell me when you're ready to go. Don't, you know, I don't understand that relationship where they, they think they got to hide it. And well, I understand it because probably a lot of chefs after you know, get angry when you, when you try to hide. It. You know, so here's the thing: I, I when I worked at Quilted Giraffe, Quilted Giraffe was a, it was an anomaly in the restaurant industry in New York because Barry Wine, who was the chef owner, was an attorney, um, practiced law. Uh, he was a Wall Street attorney. Decided to go up to New Paltz, New York, where he had a, 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 a house and open a restaurant up there. It was this nur- nursery theme, and and he brought it to New York City and did really well. And Barry, the kitchen was mostly staffed with career change people. Um, and there were a lot of women in the kitchen. Um, Barry's wife ran the restaurant, Susan. And that restaurant was, was, you know, it was one of those restaurants. Nobody went out and party afterwards. I went home after that. I'd, I'd get in my car and drive back to New Jersey. And um, it was a very different place. And that, that's where I cut my teeth in New York. And so it was like going to a commuter school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but and so <laughs> very much so, yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, 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 I think I think you're touching on something new. I used to, if I wanted to learn something, I would say, uh, Chef, I'm going to come in a couple hours early because I want to learn, you know, you know you're, you're butchering, I want to learn. I mean, one, this place I worked in. But that's in, illegal now. Of course it is. It's illegal <laughs> back then, too. But it's <laughs> And they butchered everything, but they butchered in the morning. So I would say, oh, I'm going to come in early and learn how to butcher legs, legs of lamb. I'm sorry, legs of veal. Uh, they did a lot of veal scallopini and veal parmesan and stuff like that. So they would, we would get six legs a week. And, and you know, you, you learn how to seam out a, a, a you know, leg of veal, you can pretty much do anything. And uh, so, but yeah, so nowadays that doesn't happen. And, um, but I just find it's, 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 it's kind of interesting that the, the cooks that are coming in, and maybe because the culinary school is just pumping out these kids too quickly, um, there doesn't seem to be that that the same level of interest. It's it's I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm just I'm, I'm not spending as much time with them. You know, the cooks um, like I used to when I was you know the early days of Grand Prix, early days of crap. I was in the kitchen all the time, interviewing, hiring everybody. Um, but uh, I just yeah, I actually I'm, have a theory behind this. My th- I, I was looked at, you know, when I was, when I, you know, Marco Canor, for instance, Hearth Restaurant in New York, when he came to me at Gramercy Tavern, he had, you know, his resume wasn't very good. Um, he had hair down to the middle of his back and, you know, it was unshaven. I think he just got off his motorcycle after driving cross country. <laughs> but five minutes with the guy, speak, talking for five minutes, you saw the passion he had for food. It was unmistakable. And, and, uh, but, you know, and I think I think that people are a little timid. And, 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 you know, they the, the 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 passion changed from the passion of, of really I think wanting to cook to wanting to play this you know playing this game and 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 you know back when I was coming up there were no events 
there wasn't there wasn't a circuit you know there wasn't right. food festival right. none of that was happening and so i think nowadays it's just emphasis on i want to be in front of tv i want to be at a food festival and i gave a, i gave a commencement speech to the culinary you know culinary institute years back and i said you know if you if you came to the school because you want to be the next Emma Lagasse on TV, if your parents sitting next to you apologize for wasting their money, it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, but I, I have a theory behind this. And I, you know, I don't think that there's less passion in the industry. I think there's just more people. And I yeah. think that the truth is that this industry at one point was a place that for one of a very few amount of people. Either right. you, Either you had no other choice and this is the only place you can get a job or a career or a straight job without doing crime. Right. Yeah, Anthony, the Anthony Bourdain, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was, the, it was the, the, the first job he got out of prison and the, and the last job he had before going to prison. Well, exactly, right? And then, you know, or the second segment was you were in love. You were passionate. There was something about cuisine. There was something about cooking. There was something about food. And furthermore, there was something about the kitchen that just drove you. I remember walking into a kitchen when I was 13 years old and I have never had never been successful in a classroom. I could not sit in a classroom for longer than five minutes paying attention. It was just, it was excruciating for me. And, you know, as you said, you had been, uh, you know, had clinical ADHD, you know, I, I I have had the same thing, you know, and it's something that I've struggled with my entire life. But as soon as I walked into a kitchen, it was like all of a sudden everything, everything that was like jumbled all of a sudden just made sense. The intensity of the kitchen, the, the absolute kind of uh, visceral feelings of everything, how hot the water was when you're scrubbing pans, how loud it is, how it's moving, the energy. And I think that today where we're at is there's just more people, there's more jobs, there's more restaurants and you just don't, there is no way that that amount of people have that level of, I would say, idiosyncrasies that a lot of the people who were getting into the industry back then did, right? Like you're getting a lot more normal people. And I hate to use that word, but, you know, I don't consider myself to be normal by any stretch of the imagination. But today I see, I meet a lot of normal people in the industry who are like, I want a normal lifestyle. I want something that's sustainable. I want to be able to see my family. I don't want to give everything up for this. And that is very normal. But I feel like when I started cooking, I didn't meet very many normal people. They were like, I don't give a shit. I want to die right here at the stove before I retire. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, for me, I think it was, you know, the idea of finishing something. When I, when I was a kid, I would, I would build model cars and airplanes and never finish them. And going to a kitchen, man, you started a dish, you finished it. <laughs> you, saw, you saw it go out. And so there's this idea that I've actually accomplished something. You know, when I, when I, the, the first job, so I was in, working in this restaurant called Evelyn's Seafood Restaurant, and I was there as a busser, um, you know, during when I was a kid, you know, and then right out of high school, my, you know, I started working in the kitchen. And the first, you know, I walked into the kitchen, and they had 150 pounds of, you know, you know shrimp and, and they said, you know, peel them all. And I was like, all right, and I, and I worked as fast as I can to get through it. I felt like the sense of accomplishment was done. You know, when you're, when you're looking at, at 40 pounds of shrimp, that last shrimp is, you know, that's an accomplishment. And they're like, here's another 150 pounds. Right, they <laughs> and, just keep coming. And, but there's just a sense of, of, of that I can I can complete something. And and I never, at the time, I didn't think of this at all. This, this is, is, you know, looking back on 
on why I was attracted to the, to, to, to the industry. I, mean, I love food, um, but I love the mechanics of it. I like I love the way a kitchen worked. Um, you know, the it was, it's all this this intricate game. You know, you figure out what you need to order for the day. You figure out what what you can do. You know, prep wise, that's gonna you know what you can do ahead of time. That's gonna create the, the least detriment to the final outcome of the dish. So if you've got a blanched piece ahead of time, that's probably fine because it's probably better. You know, used to used to make pan sauces. Well, nowadays, you know, at least in my kitchen, I don't do them anymore because it's too it's it's too distracting. It's it's too uh, it's, it's, it's inconsistent. Yeah. Inconsistent, yeah. Thanks. Inconsistent. And so, but a great, you know, we make stocks. <laughs> we roast things. I don't I don't sous vide cook. Um, and I, to me, it's this essential accomplishment of, of roasting, a, you know, having a station where you got meat cooked and you got the entrepreneur next to the guy and, and you're, you're working and this team is working together and it's producing beautiful food and it's happening. It's all clicking. The fish sides, you know, it's happening over there. The hot apps are coordinated with the cold apps. It's all in your head. You're working the tickets of the past and you're, you're I, mean, I put myself in that, in that position working the past where I'm cooking everything. I'm cooking through the cooks, and so I have to make sure that everybody's doing things the right. And there's just just something there's it's it's, it's there's something poetic about it. It's, it's it's beautiful when it all falls into place, and that's what I liked about it. That's that's what attracted me to it. So and, I think yeah. I th- I think it would you know you know back to the kind of original uh, point of our conversation when you know when we started the conversation we talked about the fact that you know you you're a very prominent personality these days and. I think anybody would probably assume that you probably make more of your living being on TV or doing media-driven things than you do in restaurants. Is that a correct assumption? Um, yeah, n- n- not not a lot more, but yeah, probably. So, uh, but, but that's that's only because um, you know once you get past ten seasons on a TV show. <laughs> You actually can start, you know, getting paid. Sure, or, sure, or, and or, and, or, and or, I don't or, mean or, that, and I don't mean that in a disparaging sense. I, there's no, a point no, that I fine. get that I'm getting to with that, and sure. the point that I'm trying to get to is, you know, over the past eight months, you know, uh, you and I have gotten to know each other from the Independent Restaurant Coalition, and you know, uh, I've seen you on those calls, and for me, it's at 7 a.m. For you, it's at 10, um, right. but I've seen you on those calls sometimes five days a week, mm-hmm. right? And the amount of energy and attention you put into those calls strikes me as the restaurant industry really means something to you um, beyond just the fact that it's your only source of livelihood, which for a lot of us on the call, it is our only source of livelihood. For you, if restaurants went away, at the end of the day, I think you would still survive. You would still be okay. Mm -hmm. Yet you put in a tremendous amount of your time and energy into trying to get the Restaurants Act passed, into playing a role in the Independent Restaurant Coalition. And I guess my question is, why do you do it? What What is it about this industry that you feel is so worth saving? Well, you know, you're right. If, if, if I close my places tomorrow, I can, I can, you know, still make a damn good living on TV and I could probably also reinvent myself and, uh, and, and, and land, I'm going to land on my feet. Um, but I've got, you know, 470 people that I laid off on March 13th and some of them I hired back. Um, and so I mean, it's, 
you know, partly why I'm doing it, partly, you know, having, having grown up in the industry and having, having had to go out and borrow money to open a restaurant and find partners and play that game. Yeah. You know, I think about all the people, especially all the, you know, young, young chefs who maybe are two or three or four years in, maybe they have one or two restaurants and, you know, they got it all. This is it, man. It's all in the line. And I, I know how, how scary it was to open a restaurant and knowing I'm going in debt to do this. All right. I owe money to someone, but I'm going to, I'm going to do this because I'm passionate about this. And I know that that is going across the country. That's happening. Or, or the, 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 the recent naturalized immigrant who decided to open up a restaurant, he and his wife are working every single day. The kids are there on weekends. You know, so there's, there's too much at stake. Um, there's too many livelihoods, there's too many lives at stake. There's too many people who, who are going to get crushed if we don't, you know, get funding. Um, so yeah, you're, you're, you know, you're right. I'm going to land on my feet, but a lot of people are going to, are going to get taken down. And, and uh, can and you, they don't have, if, 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 if we pass the restaurant act, the way it's set up, every single independent restaurant could apply and receive money. It's not, doesn't go through the SBA like PPP did, uh, it goes through treasury and, um, it, it's based on, on last year's tax returns, and if you open a restaurant in 20, you know, 2020, um, there's we can we can take care of that as well. And this is is gonna you know, it's gonna get restaurants through. So when we're on the other side of this pandemic, and when the vaccine is is, is enough people have the vaccine, and we can confidently go out and open things again, and people are gonna people are dying to go out, we better be there. There's gonna be a lot of jobs that people aren't gonna return to. So that's 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 why. I mean, to me, it's just it's it's it's, it's just compassion that I you know I have for anyone who's in the industry. And, and why why is it that PPP is an inadequate fix for restaurants? Well, you know, again, the, the PPP. I think the idea was that you use the restaurants to really just you know fund money through to go to the staff, and that's fine. Um, it happened, you know, it, it took a while for it to happen. So everybody was already laid off, right? And plus there was also $600 a week in unemployment benefits, which if you were, you know, a waiter or a cook and $600 a week in unemployment benefits and you weren't going out because of the damn COVID shut everything down, you probably save money. So um, not, not, a, not a bad thing. Um, but PPP, you can only use it to pay rent and pay payroll and, and utilities. And so... You know, when we opened, when we closed the restaurant in March, the, the money that we were taking in in March, we were paying bills from, you know, January, February, and all of a sudden, cash flow is done. Anyone, anyone who's opened a restaurant knows that, that restaurants run on cash flow. We don't bank money. Um, there's, there's, no, there's no margin to bank money. And um, so when cash flow you know, dies, you can't pay your bills anymore. And... We're shut down and, you know, trying to reopen if we get shut down again, which we're going to. Um, you guys are already shut down, right, in California? Yeah, we, we, yeah. we've we been yeah. – indoor indoor dining got re-shut down 100%. Now oh. they're looking to shut down or actually restrict outdoor dining. In L.A., right. they got outdoor dining shut down. So it's it's well, pretty no, dire no, straits. When you're restricted and you're doing – even you know, I'm doing – the restaurant, you know, Kraft is doing 30% of its usual business. And factor in, this is December. This is where we make money, the fourth quarter. This is where we actually have a, a you know, a, a, a robust bottom line. And, you know, but it's so, 
you know, it's, it's going to be hard to restart um, because our suppliers aren't going to supply us if we can't pay them. And so, you know, PPP, yeah, I can use it to pay staff, but I don't need all, you know, 100% of my staff back because there's no jobs for them. Um, wait staff, if they're making tips, I can't flood the floor with 50 waiters. No one will make money. And so it's it's a it's a it's a bad cycle that we're in right now. And and PPP that doesn't do it is a short term fix. You know something Marco Rubio thought about. You know and just kind of slapped it together. And it it, it just didn't didn't really work. And yet he thinks it did. Um, and uh, yeah, landlords got paid. Um, but uh, and then and then if if you didn't hire everyone back, most of that is going to be loan. Yeah, it's going to be debt. Um, more debt. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I'll tell you, uh, one thing that I'm looking at right now is the fact that a lot of these folks took on PPP, and if they keep going with this PPP, they're going to try and take it again, and a lot of them are not going to get as much forgiven as they think they will. And yeah. it's going to be like a cyanide pill that doesn't kill you right away it's going to kill you in six months from now or eight months from now because that debt is going to be so heavy and so hard to manage that at some point you're just going to look at it and be like, you mean if I just shut my doors and walk away from this project, I can just start new again in another thing? And it's just going to be this chef shuffle and this, uh, I think, a lot of people losing jobs, a lot of turnover, a lot of vendors not getting paid, when the truth is, if they you know, just passed the Restaurant Act, it would help these businesses sustain. Even yeah. if they have to stay closed, they'll be able to pay off all their vendors, pay their rent, uh, keep their management teams you know, getting paid, keep people on insurance, giving, give people benefits, and then reopen. And then, God forbid, they have to close again, they can close again. And then they can cover for PPE, they can build... Uh, plexiglass partitions, outdoor dining areas, like all of these different things. Dave, we don't need that. I think anybody that's building that stuff right now, if they start building it now, you're foolish. Right. I'm just saying the people who've already built it who are in debt because of it. Yeah. I mean, listen, my my take on this is come June, um, the vaccine seems to, you know, it's it's getting shipped right now as we speak. Um, Uh... And, and I think, you know, once we get to where 60, 70 percent of the population is vaccinated and I actually think one thing I, I, I think should absolutely happen. If you get vaccinated, you should have an ID card that says you're vaccinated um, because I like to know. <laughs> I feel like that's a slippery slope, but I don't want to go down that one uh, with you. I don't want to no, go down that rabbit hole because I, 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 I have I have definite paranoia of our government. So. No, 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 I know it's like a license. It's it's like a license saying that you were vaccinated and and and, and make it where it's 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 given out by the government. And the reason being, I may decide you know what I'm going to open a restaurant, and if there's a bunch of anti-vaxxers out there that decide that, that they don't want to take a vaccine, well, I don't want them in my restaurant because they're going to affect my staff. I mean, there's also concert venues already talking about this, that to get into a concert, you're going to have to prove that you were vaccinated. And that's going to have to happen for a while. And, and, and you know, I, I would like to know that everyone walking through my door has been vaccinated. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like I said, I, I, I have a lot of skepticism around um, 
medicine in general. And I'm not an anti-vaxxer by any definition, but I I am very concerned with, um, you know, the quickness of our society to, you know, use antibiotics and things like that. And I understand the vaccine is, is 1000% necessary, but I'm, I, I just, I don't know. I feel like it is a slippery slope to basically say, you know, someone can't be employed or someone can't go anywhere if they, if they well, don't well, have vaccines. Our kids, go, our kids can't go to public school without vaccinations. Well, yeah. I, I mean, not everywhere, but yes, I, I, I take your well, point. Okay. I take your point. And, and like I said, I, I feel like it's a rabbit hole. We don't, we don't have to go down that one. Uh, one thing that I do, I kind of want to shift gears and talk about is, you know, w- maybe one of the positive things of this entire thing is the fact that we're going to have to relook at a lot of our systems, a lot of our pricing, a lot of our operations, because one thing that's for sure is the fact that we have kept prices so artificially low for such a long time. And that's because labor has been largely either subsidized by, uh, you know, tipping or tip credits or by uh, underpaying people who pick food or grow food or, uh you know, you name your, your reason of, uh, inequities in our, you know, not just this industry, but every other industry that's, uh, you know, adjacent to ours. And I wonder, do you think that we are going to make a change in the near future to just food and restaurants being more expensive across the board? I think so. I, I, I believe that we pay the lowest percentage of our income for food uh, in any other country. And it's because, uh, it starts in the field, um, and it starts in our food, in our meat processing plants. Um, and where, you know, people are paying minimum wage and minimum wage means seven thirty-five an hour, which is for 40 hour week. It's about, around $15,000 a year. Think about that. Someone working full time, making $15,000 a year. I mean, I, I struggle to think about where where in the United States you can survive. Yeah, that. yeah. And you hear it all the time. Well, fifteen dollars an hour might be, might be okay for New York, but in Alabama, it's not. Yeah, it's, in Alabama, it's not, it's not a lot of money either. <laughs> right. We got to we got to get past. It. But but again, to do that, yeah, we're going to have to. This bugs me sometimes about New York. It's always you know very liberal people. You probably see the same thing in San Francisco, and they want you to pay fifteen dollars an hour, and I'll pay people twenty dollars an hour. I got to I got to raise prices. Simple as that. Right. And, well, I think that's the misconception. Yeah, people, people don't. Coming out of a recession, um, you're not going to have a lot of elasticity in pricing, and it's 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 what's called stagflation, where you have to raise the price because things are costing more money, but you can't because we're coming out of a recession, and so um, this is it's, it's something we're going to have to come to terms with. Um, you know, we're I'm I'm part of one fair. Uh, you know, the organization One Fair Wage, which is trying to get rid of tip credits, you know, in, in New York and across the country, getting rid of, of they ultimately like to get rid of tips, which I'm okay with too. Um, but to do that, we decided to get rid of tips and pay waiters what they were making with the tip. I know in my restaurant, you know, some of the waiters would make like $40, $40 an hour. Right. Um, and I'm fine with that. I have to raise prices by 25% to do that. Because now it's, ta- it's all taxable income, right? Uh, where tips are not taxable to me, um, and uh, so you know it's it's a it's it's a yeah you have to pay more for food. There's no way around it, and yet 
um, you know, we're looking at, at, at inequities in, in throughout the entire system and something has to give. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a problem that we have, but it's a problem in, in so many industries. It's, you know, I mean, what do you, what do you make as a retail cashier? What do you make bagging groceries? What do you make, you know, these are jobs that used to be, you know, taken by you know, the first job you had. Well, now a lot of people are living off that job. And so this is what's changed. You know, there's, there's fewer, there's fewer, you know, factory jobs. It used to be you come out of school, if you decide not to go to college, you get a job in a factory and, you know, do okay. You know, you could buy a house and you could, you could buy a car every five years or something, maybe take a vacation, raise your children. And nowadays, those, those jobs are gone. <clears throat> those jobs are, are the jobs that are available now are service industry jobs. And those service industry jobs, there's always a pressure to keep those wages lo- as low as possible. I mean, what, 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 a fast food chain would have to raise a burger price by what, five cents to accommodate that? But God forbid you raise a burger five, five cents. It's like, you know. Well, and, and, you know, beyond that, right, like you're talking about like the extreme inexpensive burgers in our industry, right? Like you, you look at the fact that you can still see a commercial on TV where somebody's like 99 cent menu, the $1 menu, like all of these things where you're like, what the fuck am I going to get for a dollar that I, I can actually eat? But then at the same time, you have to look at the level of like elitism and inequity in our world. And you think to yourself, well, shit. Uh, I remember a time in my life where that dollar menu was the way I ate. And I remember a time where that, if, if my family wanted to go out to eat dinner, that's, that's what the treat would be. And that's what could be afforded. But then you look at the other spectrum of the industry and you start to look at restaurants, uh, probably like our restaurants that, you know, if you're going to make a burger, you're going to get probably a primal cut of meat or, or something within that realm you're going to choose the pieces that you like. You're going to grind them in-house to have like this perfect ratio. You're going to bake a bun in-house. You're going to make a mayo. You're going to get like this heirloom tomato. Uh, you're going to, you know, do all of these different things. You're going to cut the fries, fry the fries, make your own ketchup, do all this stuff, right? And I would say that that burger, in order to have any level of equity, in it is going to have to cost us around uh, cost you know the public around 30 bucks in order f- to pay people what you need to pay them to do that burger and i wonder you know does that mean that that burger goes away uh does it is it just not important um yeah. will a segment of the population appreciate it and is that elitism you know like wh- what do you no. make of that no i th- i think there'll be a market for that I mean, keep in mind you know Dave, if we have, a, we have a good night of craft and we do 230 covers, it's nothing. 230 people. Right. I mean, there's a lot of black people. In, in, all, in all of New York. Exactly. Right. But what, my, my, my point is that there's going to be a market for that expensive burger because someone will see the value in all that stuff. And that's why, you know, some of the, the higher end restaurants are, are, you know, better restaurants because you'll, you'll take the time to do that. And someone will recognize that and they're not going to complain that it's a $20 hamburger or $26 hamburger because... They may find the value in that. Somebody else won't. Somebody else who doesn't have twenty, you know, six dollars to spend on a hamburger will find value in, you know, a fast food burger. What you're eating, though, you know, for the ninety-nine cents a meal, what you're really eating is a lot of low wages. But, you know, so. Um, but it's 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 a it's a you know it's a complex it's a complex problem. Which is funny, um, though, by the way, if here in San Francisco, if, if someone sees a whole roast chicken on a menu and it's you know 60 something dollars 
you know, they will automatically start being like, oh, that's that's like a a one percenter type uh, meal or or a one percenter type chicken. Uh, You know, the, the, the one thing I try to tell people, I'm like, no, that's the proletariat workforce chicken. That that's the one that's uh, the the one percenter chicken is the one dollar menu because that's the one that's creating the one percent the 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 sixty five dollar chicken like you know one, one time actually uh, Tyler Florence told me a a, a a saying one time I never forgot it because you know I I always feel like at this because of this saying I'm always gonna be <laughs> I'm never gonna make it into the middle class but the saying was that if you if you feed the classes you sleep with the class the, the masses yeah, and if you yeah. feed the masses you sleep with the classes right yeah. and and that's the thing that I try to explain to people I'm like the people who are becoming millionaires and billionaires off of food are that dollar menu and the folks that are serving a $65 chicken oftentimes they're buying a chicken from a farm that ended up costing them for that bird, they're not making a ton of money on that. But you can bet that that bird had a life up until its death that was like a a reasonable life, a a good life. The people who worked on that farm were treated well. The the area surrounding the farm was kept up well and it was biodynamic and all of this great stuff that people like. But I think that our industry just has a problem with messaging, especially at our segment of the of the industry, is we do a terrible job messaging to people why it's important. Well, I think, I think, but again, the industry, this is where I think there's a disconnect because I, I don't, I don't, I don't speak for the industry. I speak for my restaurant. Um, I, I, so I, I can, I can, you know, get my wait staff to buy into that, that $60 chicken. And I get people coming to the restaurant to buy into it. This is the problem with being on TV. People are going to go, oh, you're charging $60 because you're on TV. No, I'm not charging $60 on TV. I'm charging $60 because I bought that chicken for 20 bucks because I went to a farm. I mean, there's a woman down the street from me. I'm, I'm in Long Island, way up on the, on the North Fork, way out, way out east. And there's a woman named Holly Browder who, who raises chickens. It's, a, it's an, an Italian breed. Um, they're, they're raised in the field. She uses the, you know, the Salatin method of, of, of rotating birds through, through these various paddocks. They are the most delicious birds I ever had in my life. They cost $35. <laughs> yeah. But I could feed, you know, six people because the, the, the meat is so rich and you only need like four ounces and it's enough. You don't need, you don't need to eat half a chicken. And it's, 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 it's delicious. But also <clears throat> I go there and shop because I want to support her, her type of farming and what she does. I find value in that. A lot of people aren't going to. So it's not about educating the public. It's about just educating the people who are your customers. Not every person out there is my customer. I know that. That's fine. Um, I have a high-priced steakhouse in Las Vegas. And we get what we get. That's the one place you actually can realize the price of food. Most people go and go, my God, it's outrageously expensive. That's the price of food because the restaurants are unionized. They're all making a lot more money than 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 um, you know some of the other restaurants. But um, it's uh, people don't complain. It's okay. They, they seem to be okay. Yeah, they're with it. they're on vacation, so they're like yeah, maybe maybe. But you know, I I, I it's it, I, I don't I don't. It's not it's not the message you have to get to to understand that. And if someone who's not in your restaurant. And they just want to look at your menu and go, "Oh, you're an obese." Ignore them. You, you can't. You can't win. You're never going to win that fight. You know, I, I love the I love the the, the the restaurants that are on Yelp before they even open. 
<laughs> people are complaining about. Oh my God. I, uh, I'll share this with you that, uh, you know, the first night that we opened Kfico, uh, I went home and for some stupid reason, I decided to look at Yelp. I, I have no idea why, or maybe the next day somebody came to me and they were like, Hey, we got a Yelp review. And I was like, you're joking, right? We've been open for one night. And so, you know, we opened the restaurant at 5.30. There was a, there was a review at 6.45, basically calling for me to go get my money for my culinary degree back, saying <laughs> that, that I had no, it, it was vicious. That's the kind of, that's the kind of thing I read a family meal. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I found it way less funny that day, but today. <laughs> of course, because, because you, you open a restaurant and you suck money into this thing, you put your, your shingle out there and you put your, your, yourself on the line. And that's what happens. You just get ripped apart and it's like, oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. Um, opening up a restaurant and going through that review process is the worst thing ever. Um, and, you know, we still do it. Do you, um, let me ask you this. Um, and I had a conversation with Andrew uh, Friedman um, yeah. the other week who who is a good friend of mine. And I love speaking to him because he's a great, I feel like, barometer for or rather, he's a great sounding board for me because if I ever want to know if I'm being unreasonable or if I'm ever being just like too chefy um, about something or too inside baseball about something, I'll ask him and, and he gives me great feedback. And he and I had a, um, you know, a back and forth about, you know, the responsibility of the journalist, um, you know, in the food industry and so on and so forth. And, you know, I have this uh, theory that some of, and I'm not, I'm not excusing all of it and I'm not excusing it actually. I'm not, I'm, but I'm not saying this is all about this, but I think that it plays a role. I think that the review period plays a role in the negative culture of restaurants in like the pressure, the undue pressure, the stress, the, um, kind of the blow ups, the, um, you know, the lack of sleep, the lack of days off, the lack of, family time, uh, you know, all of these things that would add to a more reasonable person managing. I think that the review process plays a role in that. And I wonder, do you think that the kind of press plays a role at all in the culture of our industry? And do you feel like in order for our industry to change in a, in a wholesale way, and when I say change, I mean the culture, right? Like the, the culture of um, intimidation and pressure. Do you think that they need to change their methods? Again, um, I'm not sure about that. And again, I, I, I don't know if the culture in the industry is going to change. We're individual restaurants. I know the culture in my restaurant. And, and this is the problem. You know, the phenomenon of opening multiple restaurants, the more you have, the further your culture gets away from you. And that's when things start to go bad. But the culture happens in each individual restaurant. It's, it's not going to be this universal. The industry is going to change because the industry is made up of fast food and it's made up of, you know, 400, $400 tasting menus. Yeah. But and nobody ever writes about the fast food places, right? No, like no, they're no, writing no, about. Even that, I, I, I think that, um, you know, I don't know. Cause I don't know if those, if those reviews matter as much as they used to. You know, well, uh, okay, so let me let me back up. Let me ask you this. Okay, w during the times that you opened restaurants, and I mean like the restaurants that were really crucial to your career, right? Like, yeah. I would I would venture to say that if you open a restaurant today, right, like you you needed to be financially successful. But if you get a 
one star review at a restaurant, it's not killing your career, right? Like, no, especially it's, if it's financial. But there was a time, Tom, uh, that, you know, it's like Gramercy Tavern, Mondrian, Kraft, you know, those first reviews in the New York Times that if you didn't get your, you know, really positive two star or three star review, I mean, there was a chance that your restaurant wasn't going to make it past the first year, right? Um, it, it used to be. It used um, to be, right? You know, yes. The, the restaurants, again, back then, I'll take New York because that's, that's what I know. New York, when I was coming up, there were three. There were, there were two reviews, really. New York, New York Magazine, New York Times. That was it. That's where you got reviewed. There was no social media. There was no Instagram. There was no, there was, there was a Zagat, and Zagat survey. That was it. Those were the three things. You, you, you did okay there. You were fine. Um, also, the process back then was very different too because the only restaurants getting reviewed were French and Italian restaurants. And so you kind of, mostly French and some Italians, and, and again, the newer American restaurant, only fine dining. They weren't reviewing, um, you know, there, there were no hip, cool, you know, Thai restaurants when, you know, some guy who grew up in Kansas City decided to go to Thailand and live there for 10 years and come back with these great recipes. It never happened. And so you understood the reviewer, the reviewers were, it was, it was, it was, there, there was a similarity to the restaurants getting reviewed. And so you had a pretty good baseline of what the restaurant could be if it got a, a two or three star review. And nowadays it's all over. So you get a pizzeria in New Jersey that gets, you know, three stars from the New York Times. And, but I don't know how they're comparing those restaurants. If you look at the capsule, what the stars mean, it doesn't match up. Right. Of course. Of course. And And, and the same with Michelin. But, but the point that I'm trying to make here that I, that I want to kind of see if you agree with is at that time when you felt like your life was on the line and you needed to get that three-star review, you were not taking many days off, right? You were not leaving your restaurant before everybody else left. You were getting there before anyone else was getting there. You probably weren't sitting down for three square meals. You'd be lucky to eat one pint of food over a trash can. You weren't getting a lot of sleep. You probably weren't seeing your wife very much. You were probably drinking too much coffee, maybe finishing the night with some drinks just to kind of like cool off and take the edge off so you can fall asleep. And so the thing that I'm trying to say is that that all leads to a person who is short on patience, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, 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 I hear what you're saying. I don't, I, I, I disagree. I think reviewers are going to review a restaurant. They're going to do what they do and that's it. And we can either, and nowadays you don't have to play by those rules anymore because of social media. It used to be that really can make or break you. But I think any entrepreneur that opens a business does that. I don't think that that's, that, that's, uh, you know, only, only happens in, in, in restaurants. No, right. I, I, I agree. I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, both of my parents are small business owners. They came here as refugees and they both built businesses for themselves. But the thing is, there was never a time where, you know, my dad opened a little, you know, um, medical equipment shop and my mom was a chiropractor. There was never a time where they were sitting there saying like, guys, we're in review period. Someone's going to walk through the door and tell uh, the entire, um, you know, chiropractic community whether we're worth a shit or not. Right. Like that was not the case for them. Right. Right. But you know what? Every actor that, 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 you know, has a dream of, 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 you know, doing Broadway. Well, they can't complain once they get on stage that someone's going to critique them. Right, but to but to add to that, those people don't have to manage a staff of ninety. No, no, they they don't. 
but but again, we cho- we chose us. Sure, and uh, and yeah. I'm in no way complaining about the the choice, and I'm not lamenting that either. I'm just yeah. I'm asking the simple question. I'm asking is this: is do you feel like in order for our segment of the industry to change in terms of the pressure and the um, you know the blowups and the you know tempers and all of that shit? Do you feel like the the media, the food media, needs to change the way that they report on restaurants? Or do you think it doesn't matter? They're not connected whatsoever. Well, I think they already are. Um, meaning that, that they are reviewing other restaurants other than French or Italian restaurants. So that's, a, that's already happened while, that's a while ago. And I think also um, that they're covering... I think they're starting to cover the industry differently. Um, they've realized that they that they were also the gatekeepers of keeping people out, and so I, I think I, food journalism is, is is changing. In terms of, of reviewing, they're two separate things. There are reviewers and there's food journalists, and they're, they're I, in my mind they're separate. Um, but I think journalists have made that 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 change. Um, you know, I, there's also something else that, that happened is that a lot of food writers started getting really chummy with chefs. That didn't happen when I was coming up. You didn't hang out with, you know, Carolyn Richmond from the Washington Post or, or you know, uh, or, I'm just, I don't know why that came to my mind. Um, but food writers, there was, there was, a, there was an arm length thing. We didn't go out and have drinks with them. They called us, they got the story, and that was it. We didn't hang out with them. And that changed in, you know, you know, I would say going back maybe 15 years ago when, you know, when the festival started, because then everybody, everybody hung out and it just became too incestuous. And, and it's, just, it's just, you know, I think, I think there's so many things that just came together to sort of, you know, get us where we are today, where we're having a reckoning. And again, I don't think we're going to tear down the industry, but we're having a reckoning. We're, we're, we're coming to terms with a lot of the, 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 the shit that went on and, and uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, did I have outbreaks and, you know, raise my voice in the kitchen? Yeah. Have I ever threatened anybody? No. Did I ever corner anybody and walk in and, you know, grab them, sexually assault them? No. Um, but, um, you know, I, you got to look, look back at my career and think that I, I, I've given people opportunities. I mean, you know, going back to the Gramercy days, I always like having women in the kitchen because I, th- I always thought of common kitchens down. Um, you know, back when I was a, a you know, the heyday of Gramercy Tavern. This is when Jonathan Benno was a cook and Marco Knorr was a cook and James Tracy and Akhtar Nawab. You guys were all cooking. <clears throat> they were all subordinate to these, you know, three or four women that I had in the kitchen that were just awesome. I mean, two sous chefs and saucier. And uh, there was a, there's something about the kitchen that just tempered the kitchen. That everybody was just a little more even keeled. And uh, I thought it was a much better environment. I thought it was a much more creative environment. There was no, there was no bullshit. There was no, you know, someone trying to walk everyone. It was fun. We had a great time. We laughed. And, uh, you know, I, it's, it's, yeah. Well, well, having, having, having mixed like a a properly diverse kitchen, um, at least gender wise, uh, first of all, alleviates a lot of the grab ass. Um, I, I feel, and it creates some accountability, right? Because there's a lot less likelihood that, a kitchen that has a good amount of, of female presence in it is going to accept any nonsense from a bunch of assholes um, 
you know, rather than one or two feeling like they're in the minority and they kind of have to, you know, uh, get along, to, you know, give it along to get along or whatever that saying is, um, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and, and I totally, I totally agree with you. Um, I th and, and luckily I think we're in a place where there's more females in the industry than I think there ever was before. And, you know, uh, luckily also a lot of those females are starting to rise through the ranks and becoming chefs in their own right. And at least in my generation right now, there's a, a, a ton of really exceptional female chefs out there that are doing their own things and they're running, um, you know, incredible kitchens. And I think that that's super important. Um, I think the question that I want to ask you to that, you know, I guess to that point and to what we've been talking about previously is, do you, do you feel like there, you know, you, you said that there is a reckoning happening within our industry, but you've also talked about like, Hey, you know, it's like, there's, you don't, you don't see the concept of burning it down, but where do you feel like it lands, right? Like, do you feel like there is going to be substantive change that everyone recognizes in our industry, and, and when I say our industry, right, like I, I do want to point out, right, like, and you've pointed out for me, like there's a segment of our industry. I'm not talking about all of the restaurant industry. I'm not talking about fast food. I'm not talking about the waffle houses throughout like the South and stuff like that. I'm talking about our segment of that kind of like mid-range, uh, you know, fine casual to fine dining restaurants. Do you feel like there's going to be a substantive culture change or our industry is going to change in some major way when we come out of this? Or do you think that we're just going to ease back into the way things were? I don't, you know, everybody wants to point at COVID for being the reason for things are changing. It was changing. I don't think it's the reason. I just think it catapulted us, right? It just like fast forwarded Possibly, there's a double-edged sword there. If there are fewer restaurants or fewer jobs to go around, um, but you know, so rock restaurant opportunity. Uh, I'm forgetting what it was. So rock published uh, an organization that started after 9/11 to help the uh, uh, workers who were displaced from uh, Windows on the World, and. Um, they published a guide to the restaurants and restaurateurs and chefs that were actually getting it right. And they looked at the amount of, uh, you know, brown faces they saw in a dining room. They looked at things, just a lot of it was reputation. Um, uh, they would actually interview you and ask you a lot of questions. It didn't get much traction. Um, you know, you got a gold, you got, you know, gold stars on that. I mean, to me, there was some talk at the time that, hey, this is as important as a Michelin guide. And it didn't it didn't go anywhere. So maybe maybe that's where the journalists have a role to play here. Maybe they can start highlighting better restaurants. Do a little research. Find out who's who's running a better restaurant. Who is making it more inclusive? Who is is paying a better rate? Who isn't ranting, raging, screaming? All the stuff that we knew that was going on, the journalists knew was going on. Now I think it's time for them. This is where they they have the responsibility to start talking about those kind of restaurants. And start talking about whether or not those are the places that you want to work at, holding those up as, as high as the you know Pellegrino Fifty. Yeah, that, that's when we'll start seeing change. You get rewarded for doing that. Uh, you know, some of us do it because it's the right thing to do. And but when you start getting rewarded for doing that, more people if they see people getting rewarded for that, they'll be like, okay, 
you know, that's 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 what I need to do to get the not to get the good the good write up, but to get the, the reputation where you're a place that people want to come to work. And also, that's what it's about. It, it's about personal responsibility and personal reputation, because you want to attract the best talent. And the best talent used to come because it was a tough kitchen working. They're not doing that anymore. Because you know, I think I never worked. Even even early as grammar should happen, I still took two days a week off. Um, I, I I couldn't do the seven days a week. I, I didn't. I, my cooks work five days a week. No cook works six days a week. Uh, my cooks were scheduled for ten hours a day, five days a week. Uh, time and a half for overtime. That's how it was baked in. Um, that's how I scheduled people. Um, I'd never expected someone to work six days a week. Just didn't happen. Um, you know, I would want people to have a, a you know life. Uh, so anyway, that, that's that's what I, I think the role that journalists have to play, and I think that's again, this is going to be individuals running a business that happen to be in the restaurant industry that are going to you know start you know changing. I, I always thought when I was coming up, you know, a lot of the shit that I saw going on. I worked my first restaurant; they would literally make me punch out and continue to work. And <laughs> I actually remember uh, yeah. a restaurant that I'm not I'm not going to name well it's actually closed so i don't give a shit it was at uh aqua back in the day and i remember it was just like the sous chef would go to the you'd be putting out the no you'd be scrubbing down but you'd still have to strain the stocks at the end of the night and you have to do like a bunch of stuff and like you know put it put certain things away and i remember we'd be still in the middle of scrubbing and the sous chef would come clock you out and be like hey you guys are all clocked out uh, so hurry up and get the fuck out. <laughs> and I remember just sitting there thinking like, oh, Jesus Christ, man, that like, and then like on top of that, I remember like two or three times my check bouncing and just, it, it's such a demeaning, you know, or demoralizing, um, feeling that, you know, uh, saves, I think just an amount of money that is not really worth the, the kind of indignant, feeling that the people who are working there feel, right? And I think that, you know, to kind of cap off this conversation, I'm, I'm going to ask you one last question, but, you know, I'm going to, before I ask you, I'm going to kind of say that I, I do think that our industry has changed in a lot of ways for the, for the better. And I believe, I really do believe that our industry is going through a real change, a substantive change, where we are recognizing that you don't need to feel like shit to get to, to become a good chef. Yeah. Uh, but I think that one thing that we need to recognize is the fact that we are fixing that element. But one thing that we're not fixing is the craftsmanship element because we're, we've lost the ability to give people the chance to, um, you know, to go through these stages, right? And whether, and, and, and I don't believe in unpaid work, right? That's not what I'm talking about, but we don't have the ability to kind of say, okay, Hey, you have zero experience. I'm going to put you next to me and I'm going to kind of take a special interest in you and teach you how to do all of these things from start to finish, make pasta, make bread, make sauce, um, you know, tournay vegetables, do all these things. So instead I'm going to have the one guy that knows how to, or the one woman that knows how to turn artichokes faster than anyone in the restaurant, turn all the artichokes and she's going to do it every day and hand them to you. And by the time you're going to be a sous chef, you're not going to know how to turn artichokes nearly as well as she will. And I think that as, a, as I think that it needs to happen from a legislative 
standpoint that we need to create a program that is around mentorship, you know, and around trades, right? Like we need to get back to a place where we create, like bring dignity back to trades, right? Like, because I don't think that the majority of the country is meant to go to a four-year college and go work behind a desk. I really don't. And the only reason I have the things that I have was because I found the kitchen and it gave me these opportunities. And I know that your story is very similar to that. So I hope that, you know, along with this beautiful culture change that's happening, we fight for a different system in which, you know, instead of people not getting paid for a stage, maybe there's a government subsidy to learning a trade, right? Like, hey, we're going to pay you to take on this person who is coming out of high school or in high school and teach them a trade. And we're going to pay half their salary. You're going to pay half their salary. And you're going to teach them all of these things. And they're going to be a part of this amazing workforce that has skills, right? Yeah. You know, year, years back, I, 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 I tried to do this and talk to a few different chefs because I, I used to, you know, when I, when I, earlier when I talked about calling our parent and Alfred, I used to do, we used to do it all the time. I would call, I would call Eric and say, I got a guy, you know, woman who's been working with me. She's, she's awesome, really well trained, worked all the stations, um, wants to work for you. Do you have anybody who wants to, who, who's ready to leave? Follow my way. And I do the same thing, you know, for a few different chefs. And I thought, well, can you formalize this? Can you actually formalize the apprenticeship program, a real apprenticeship program? Because my feeling is that you'd learn a lot more through a great, if you had 10 restaurants, and again, this has to start, I'm thinking small scale. You took 10 restaurants and said, all right, we're going to create a, 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 an apprentice program. We're going to take a you know, young person in and they're going to come and work in my restaurant and do this for six months. Then they're going to go to another restaurant and they're going to do something else for six months. And then they'll go back and do something else for six months. And you'll work a bunch of people through the system. <coughs> and at the end, <coughs> they would have to come. You can't make them, but the idea that they would land in one of those restaurants and work and then actually you know, take a job. And then we're starting to train a bunch of people this way. Um, but you really had, had, had a formalized program where you know they were going to uh, – Name a great pasta chef, you know, Felix, to, to learn pasta. Um, and they were going somewhere else to learn, they were to learn fish, and they were going to, you know, craft a roast meat. And so, but, you know, it never, it never really happened. It's just, it's complicated. But I think that, and that, that, that's what I did when I started cooking. I put myself through a practice program. I said, I'm going to work in one restaurant for a year, learn everything I can. I'm moving on to the next, and moving on to the next, and moving on to the next. And that's, that's the way I looked at it. I, I wasn't about to sit there and say, well, I'm working one restaurant forever. And that's it. And so, um, and I think you can do that and, and, and not have to go to culinary school and spend the money. And, you know, quite frankly, I'd rather hire someone who worked in three great restaurants than hire someone coming out of culinary school. Yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> I think, I think that's an understatement, right? Like I'd much rather have somebody with some real life uh, experience, especially who's proven that they can stick around and show maturity and, and, and learn things because, you know, in culinary school, the only thing you learn is terms, right? Like, and, and, and I think it's an important thing. You know, a lot of people ask me, should they go to culinary school? Should they not? And I'll say, you know, culinary school is really great for teaching you what you're going to need to go learn or what you're going to need to go, you know, figure out, right? Like it's going to tell you terms like, you know, uh, what a nage is or how to make, you know, or what demi-gloss is, or, or they'll 
teach you about restaurants like the Quilted Giraffe. Um, but what it's not going to teach you to do is, you know, uh, bang out, you know, four different temperatures, four different types of meat. Two of them are whole roasted birds. One of them is a, you know, is a uh, wrapped galantine. Like another one is like a chop and all these different things. Like that's only going to happen through like hours and hours and hours and days and days and days and months and months and months of years of banging hard on a grill station or saute station um, to the point where you get that muscle memory. And so like, you know, you can do the culinary school thing if that's going to give you some element of uh, security or, 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 um, you know, give you, yeah. or if you can afford it, but it's certainly not necessary. And I would say that it's probably, um, you know, there's never been a, well, maybe before the, the pandemic and we'll see what happens afterwards, but there's never been a time before t that it was easier to walk into a kitchen, get a job just because there's been so many kitchens and they've been yeah. so understaffed. Yeah. You take, you hire anybody with a pulse. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> like, can you breathe? <laughs> so uh, listen, I'm going to ask you one last question before I let you go. Cause it's getting late in the night uh, over there on the East coast. And I really appreciate you being here. So the last question I'm going to ask you is, you know, where, what do you want for this industry? Like if you, if you would say, Hey, like my dream scenario, you know, one wish for like our industry moving forward after this is kind of, we come out of this, is there a lesson you hope we learn? Is there a change you hope we make? Is it something you hope we don't lose? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's again. I, 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 I don't. I don't speak for. I don't speak for an industry. I don't, I don't think any one person can. And I think that um, people are going to have to make you know individual choices on how they they run their restaurants and and what type of restaurant you know. What kind of food are you doing now? These people. What kind of what kind of boss are you going to be? What type of restaurant do you want to run? Um, but these are the questions that I've always asked myself, you know, um, the last, you know, 25 years of owning restaurants. Um, you know, also I said this a long time ago. Um, and, and I still, and, and years ago I was doing a, a, a dinner series in Colorado, um, at a, a restaurant called Cliff Young's and Thomas Keller and I were doing it together. Um, and, a journalist by the name of Bill St. John um, asked me, you know, I was young. It was, it was, I was 26 or 27 or something like that. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess I was around 28, 28, 29. And I said, you know, I, I just want to be known as someone who's giving back to the industry. I want to be known by my peers as someone who's giving back. And, and I think now, it's the same thing, but I think that peer group has expanded and it's changed. And I'm saying for me, so, you know, it's just think about your legacy. Think about what you're going to be known as. Think about, about your, your, your reputation. What, what are you going to leave behind? Um, because you, you can have a great career and be known for, for, for doing great, you know, food in your restaurant. And it all could change because you are just decide that you're, you're not going to live a, a you know, you're going to abuse someone. You're going to take advantage of someone. You're going to use your power to, to take advantage. And that's going to sell your reputation. And so I think, I think that's it. I, 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 for me, it hasn't changed much in, you know, 
years that I've been doing this, it's, it's still the same. I want to do honest food. I want to treat people right. And, um, you know, if that, if that brings you success, then it brings you success. Um, you know, if, if, if you chose to, if you choose to, you know, go in a different direction and, and, you know, you're, you're going to eventually reap, you know, what you sow. Yeah. Well said. Well, Tom, I appreciate you being with me. Um, you know, I, I do hope that our industry comes out of this the other side. I hope the Restaurant Act gets passed. I hope that so many people who are struggling get the help that they need. And I hope that IRC, the Independent Restaurant Coalition, lives on past this because this has truly been the first time that our, our segment of the industry has had any real representation for it uh, that speaks for independent restaurants to where one cafe with 20 seats uh, gets the same level of representation as, you know, uh, a big restaurant tour. And I think that's very unique and it's very special. Yeah. And I, yeah. yeah, that's the one thing that can come out of this is, 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 you know, when I'm on the zoom calls, you know, we're on the zoom calls in the morning when you have 150, you know, chefs and restaurateurs across the country kind of pulling together. Um, uh, that hasn't happened before. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's the one positive thing that can come out of this is just a, a, a larger exchange of ideas. Usually you have one or two chefs that you came up with who you're, you know, you talk best practices and you sort of deal with your, your, your demons, but I think it's expanded. And I think that, that, uh, that's, that's, that's some positive that's going to come out of this. And the, the, um, the, this, yeah, that, that, I think that that's, that's, that'll, that's probably it. Well, all right, my friend. Well, I'll see you on the other side. Yeah, I'll see you on a Zoom call tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you will. Very early. All right, take All care, right. man. The main ingredient.